book of Acts, chapter 21. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and here we are in the book of Acts and come to chapter 21. Now it came to pass that when we, and so here we have the author of, human author of uh, the book of Acts, Luke, who is traveling along with Silas, and uh, as well as a group of um, elders or leaders that have been appointed from uh, the different churches that have entrusted to Paul an offering from the Gentile churches to take to the needs of the Jewish church in Jerusalem, where Paul is now making his way. So they're, they're a, a party, a group that is making their way. They go uh, from when they had departed from them, that is the elders in the city of Miletus. Uh, Miletus just being a short distance away uh, in the ancient world from Ephesus and all of it located about uh, in what we would call uh, the westernmost part of, of Turkey and known as Asia in uh, the ancient understanding of things. So departed and set sail. Paul is making his way now in earnest to Jerusalem uh, to keep the Feast of Pentecost and deliver that gift. And uh, we set sail running a straight course as we uh, came to Kos and the following day then to Rhodes and from there to Patera. Finding a ship sailing uh, over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and uh, sailed to Syria and then landed at Tyre for there the ship was to unload her cargo and finding disciples there, we stayed there seven days. And so he comes to Tyre. Uh, Tyre is in uh, modern day Lebanon. And so you can see how close he is, Lebanon being the country immediately north of Israel, how close he is to getting to Jerusalem at this point. Uh, he's on some kind of a cargo ship. All of them are. They would uh, transport goods, but also transport people for a fee, much like today in order to make uh, uh, all of these, uh, you know, money-making endeavors uh, profitable. And so they come in. And, uh, and they stay there seven days, apparently the time that it would take to uh, unload the ship with whatever was intended to come to Tyre, that part of the world, and then uh, 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 reladen it with, with the next uh, cargo. When Paul comes to Tyre, you notice that what they make a determined effort to find disciples, to find Christians uh, there. And they were able to find them uh, in the city of Tyre, and then uh, they stayed there for the seven days, fellowshipping with those Christians. This tells us a, a couple of things that are important. One of them uh, is that a church in, uh, had been established, or at least a significant number of Christians were there in the city of Tyre. Uh, we have no record at all that the Apostle Paul had been to Tyre, that he had in his ministry, that he had established a church there at all. So when we read the book of Acts, we're following um, these acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles by and large. But it doesn't mean that that was the 
uh, entire extent of the Great Commission and the expansion of the gospel and the kingdom of God in the ancient world. Uh, Far beyond the apostles, you had Christians themselves being born again, taking uh, the gospel into different parts of the world, and uh, Tyre is an example uh, of of exactly uh, that. In other words, the gospel is spreading everywhere through through the ancient uh, world. So they stay there for the uh, seven days, and the Christians there in Tyre, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up uh, to uh, Jerusalem. And uh, so these Christians, they love Paul, they're well aware of him and his ministry, and uh, they told him uh, through the Holy Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Luke records, when we had come to the end of those seven days, we departed, and then we went on our way, and all of these believers from Tyre, then they accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore to get on the ship, and they prayed. It's a beautiful scene, and it's important to notice Uh, this a little bit in terms of understanding the Apostle Paul as well. Think of all of the persecution, um, all of the bitterness and hatred and lies that were uh, brought against him, the beatings, the attempts on his life, all of these things, and and yet he continued on in his uh, his ministry. And uh, you say, what in the world could counterbalance that? Well, the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, but also... Um, the recognition and the reward of knowing what his life meant uh, to the body of Christ and to Christians and what his ministry meant to them as well. Uh, it's, uh, I think it was Mark Twain uh, who declared that I can live for two months on a good compliment. Uh, you can live a lot longer than two months uh, on the love and the appreciation of other Christians. And so when Paul would weigh in his mind all of these people that were against him, against Christ, and all of these things, and what he was up against, and in his mind, in part at least, was the idea that I am willing to put up with all of that, with the knowledge that my life and what I'm doing and how God is spending my life is a blessing to people like this. And uh, this must have been, as I mentioned every once in a while, it warms my heart to see that affection directed toward the Apostle Paul when uh, even sometimes within the body of Christ, uh, it it wasn't always expressed uh, toward him. And uh, so important to uh, realize here in this verse 4 that he, uh, uh, before they leave, and then he had taken leave in verse 6 of one another and boarded the ship, and then uh, they returned home from that location and left Paul to continue his uh, his, uh, uh, journey. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, uh, Ptolemaeus is um, uh, the uh, ancient city of Akko in northern Israel today, just a little bit ways away from Haifa, which is in the very northern part of Israel. So he enters into the land of Israel now 
uh, proper in coming to Ptolemaeus. There he was also greeted. Uh, he greeted the brethren and he stayed with them uh, one day. And, and clearly uh, the ship is driving the schedule once again and just dropping off passengers and not uh, reloading and unloading. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions, uh, again, Luke, Silas, those that were traveling with the offering, uh, we departed and we came to Caesarea. And uh, coming into Caesarea now, that is in uh, Israel proper on a typical trip to Israel. We'll make this the first stop that we come to. The ancient city of Caesarea was the center and headquarters of Roman rule uh, in the land of, of Israel. And so they come there and it was a port city, a Roman port city. And so it was a natural place to come in and, uh, and, and land and, and disembark to then make your way overland. Uh, to the city of, uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, Caesarea, you might remember all the way back in <clears throat> uh, earlier in chapter 10 in the book of Acts was where the Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, he and his household uh, were saved and we're told that they uh, then entered into the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven, one of the original seven deacons, and they stayed with him. And this man had four virgin daughters, they were unmarried, who prophesied, and they stayed uh, many days. And so he enters in, uh, and Philip the evangelist is going to provide hospitality to him and his group. Remember that Philip was one of the seven, again, deacons appointed uh, and recorded in chapter 6. Uh, later, God used Philip then to bring a great revival uh, of the word into the area of Samaria, the central part of, of Israel. Philip then in chapter 8 witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch. He is saved upon returning uh, home to Ethiopia and baptized. And then uh, Philip uh, then made his way up and the Lord taking him away from that place up the coast of Israel to settle in Caesarea and evangelizing as he made his way, as we're told in, in chapter 8. And here we get the rest of the story. So Paul Harvey and his rest of the story kind of thing for the four of you who remember Paul Harvey. So here it is 20 years later, and Paul comes into Caesarea, and who hosts him in the house? Philip. Philip had been driven out of Jerusalem originally as a Christian because of the persecution of Saul of Tarsus. Of Saul before God renamed him uh, Paul and he became Paul the Apostle. And it's, it's funny, um, you know, you never want to burn bridges in the body of Christ. Um, uh, God has a funny way over the long haul of doing some very, very interesting things. And here Paul is 20 years later after that persecution, making life miserable for Philip and so many others. And now God says, I got just the room for you. And uh, brings him into that house and he gets to see all of the grace that God poured out uh, over uh, all of those things. And I think for each of us as Christians, if we've walked with the Lord for 20 years or more, how wonderful to run into Christians as we run into Philip here in the, the passage and see he's still walking with the Lord and, 
and uh, serving the Lord fully. And so uh, if you are one of those Christians who has walked with the Lord for a long time and you just keep on keeping on, you have no idea what an encouragement uh, that, that, that your life is to the rest of us. And so uh, God bless you for doing that. And so uh, here he comes and uh, he's now being hosted by, uh, by Philip. And uh, Philip has these daughters who are also prophetesses. The idea is that they are, have their own relationship with the Lord, their own ministry, their own deep spirituality, quite, uh, quite apart uh, from their father. When I was a kid, um, I used to uh, read uh, the comics in the newspaper, and I liked them, and I like them even to this day. And, uh, and, but in the old days, they used to have, you might remember some of you who remember Paul Harvey, they, they used to have this uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Remember that little column? Okay, thank you. I'm hearing crickets in the room here, and I thought, boy, so I've outlived my usefulness. So if you're new to the fellowship, you'll realize that all of my cultural uh, illustrations are 40 years and older. You'll have to listen to other people for more contemporary uh, cultural references. But, um, but that Ripley's Believe It or Not was interesting because it would always tell you something that you just say, That's, I, if that wasn't the truth, I would, would it be hard to believe it. And uh, certainly we see that with Paul and being reunited in this wonderful way with, um, uh, with, with Philip. So they stayed there for uh, many days there in uh, the city. And then as they're in that city, uh, there a certain prophet by the name of Agabus came down from Judea. And almost certainly he, he is coming. Uh, he is a Christian, as we'll see in a moment. And he comes from the area of Jerusalem. So he's a Christian and from Jerusalem. Here's Paul is in, uh, in uh, Caesarea and coming. So he comes down. Jerusalem is an elevated uh, city uh, on, on these hills. And so uh, to, you always went up to Jerusalem and you always came down from Jerusalem, no matter what direction you were going in. And so he came uh, uh, down to see the Apostle Paul. And when he had come to us, Luke says, he took Paul's belt from around his, his waist and the belt that they would have worn in those days wouldn't be a belt that we wear with our uh, pants, uh, but it would have been a belt that would go around your waist several times and, and then you would tighten it. So he takes the belt from Paul's uh, robe there and, uh, and he took it and then he bound his own hands and feet. And uh, so here he is, very much like Jeremiah in the Old Testament, where he took uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, garment and put it down into the river, and it became ruined. And then all these different kind of uh, Ezekiel, God used a lot of, we were, they were kind of sanctified props in, in order to communicate a message. And so he's going to deliver a message, but he's going to demonstrate the message uh, too for clarity. So he takes, he binds his hands and feet. Everybody's wondering, what is Agabus up to here? And then he gives the interpretation of the message associated with it. Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt. And it's like, uh, boy, who might that be? <laughs> he just took it from Paul right there in the room. And not only will this man's... Uh, uh, 
be bound there uh, by the Jews in Jerusalem, but those same Jews will then deliver him into the hands of uh, the Gentiles. He'll be uh, bound by the Jews and then delivered over to imprisonment uh, at the hands uh, of, of the Romans. Now, this wasn't the, isn't the first time that Paul had encountered Agabus. Uh, Agabus had come uh, earlier in the record to the city, uh, the church in the city of Antioch in Syria, where uh, Paul was a leader within that church. Prior to him beginning his missionary journeys, Agabus prophesied of a great famine that was going to come uh, upon the land and was going to hit uh, Jerusalem particularly hard, and that prophecy came to pass. So here we don't have somebody that's just, uh, boy, do we know who he is? Is he really a prophet? Does he really have a gift of prophecy in, he, in his life? He's proven already uh, before the church to uh, be a, a person where God exercised prophecies uh, um, through him. And so highly regarded with that uh, proven track record and everybody knew it. And because everybody knew it, verse 12, then we, when we heard these things, this in, he's going to be bound and he's going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, both we and those uh, from that place there in Caesarea pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So the prophecy ends, people hear the news about this, and then uh, it, it, they, uh, they begin to plead with him uh, not to go up to Jerusalem. You notice the uh, plural pronouns that are used there, we, when we heard this, we, and those at that place pleaded with Paul uh, to cease now this effort to get to Jerusalem. So you not only have the Christians in Caesarea uh, Philip in, in his home and those that are gathered there around the Apostle Paul pleading with him. But you also have, uh, you also have uh, Luke. You also have Silas. You also have the other men that are uh, in his traveling uh, party now pleading with him. And not only pleading with him, but weeping and pleading for him uh, not to go. It's, it's important to um, uh, recognize that this prophecy of Agabus, it was informative, but it wasn't uh, prescriptive or directive. Uh, it was just simply Agabus informing Paul of what was to come, but in, in no way did it communicate that Paul was not to go uh, because of uh, the being bound and imprisonment that would occur uh, in Jerusalem as a result of going. And this is a, a real danger concerning God's use of, of us in terms of dreams, spiritual dreams and visions, prophecies, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, the uh, supernatural spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit that God can use to speak uh, through our lives then to uh, other people. So he reveals something uh, to us. Uh, Agabus does that. Agabus delivers the prophecy, but then the others all there, then they hijack it and they take it beyond what God intends. That's why when we have an afterglow, and there's an afterglow coming up, and uh, where we spend time waiting on the Lord, give the, the Lord an opportunity to speak through spiritual gifts in, uh, in a way that is as old as, as the church. 
And uh, sometimes people will share a verse that they believe the Lord wants to be shared. And then oftentimes I will say, well, um, make sure that when you share that, we share a verse, say, for instance, from Ephesians, uh, sometimes Paul, the way that Paul wrote that letter to Ephesians, there can be 20 things in that verse. A little hyperbole, but we don't know what God is trying to say here. So if you have a sense, in addition to the verse, what he wants to communicate to us from the verse, then go ahead and say it. But if you don't, and you're just supposed to say the verse, then just say the verse. Oftentimes when God wants to manifest the spiritual gift through our lives, he gives us something, just something to say. And then we try and figure it out. We try and figure it out to what we think he's saying, have no idea that that's the intent of it, or how the hearer is supposed to hear it. And and so we add all of our baggage to that. We hijack the prophecy, and and then we mar it. And so it's important for these, these things that God uses to simply deliver those things, but then not interpret them Uh, when we don't know what the interpretation uh, might be or what God is intending to communicate to the group or to communicate uh, to an individual. And so they take this and and just go off with it here. And Paul's response to them in verse 13, he answered, what uh, do you mean by weeping? So here they are pleading and weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound by the Jews in Jerusalem and and to be put into captivity here or imprisoned by the Romans, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. If this is his plan for my life, uh, if this is the price I have to pay to carry that name, to declare that name in this world, and to be faithful to what he's called me to, we counted that cost a long time ago. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so I'm ready for that to happen. And then when Paul could not be persuaded, they either tried to continue to persuade him and he couldn't be persuaded, or they realized when he said this, then he can't be persuaded, uh, then we ceased, again the we, saying, uh, the will of the Lord uh, be done. And so uh, they recognized that they're pleading with him uh, uh, to be fruitless, and Paul wasn't going to change his mind, and so they ceased with the words, the will of God be done. That's how Christians cry uncle uh, in a, a, a fight. And uh, after which Paul and his party then proceeded on uh, to Jerusalem. And uh, after, uh, after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain uh, nation of Cyprus, an early disciple uh, with whom we were to lodge there in Jerusalem. So a large group of people, Christians from Caesarea, now join his traveling party to go to uh, Jerusalem uh, with him. Now, you may or may not be aware of the fact that there is considerable controversy here at this point in the book of Acts in this section of Scripture. And it's important to 
to understand uh, uh, and to, to uh, come to your own conclusion related to it because how you understand and how you interpret uh, the remainder of the book of Acts depends upon how you land uh, related to this controversy. And the controversy can be summed up like this. Was Paul, the Apostle Paul, right or was he wrong in going to Jerusalem at this point in his uh, ministry? After all, uh, people will look at verse 4 and we're told that the saints entire had warned him through the Holy Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. He did it anyway. And as a result of uh, his defying God's uh, direction now, uh, all of the problems that follow are as a result of uh, of Paul's failure to listen to the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us, and really any student of, of the Bible at all, any Christian really, to get our bearings related to this critical event. Because it, again, it will determine uh, the rest of, uh, of the book and the final chapter really of Paul's life. I think there's a couple of uh, real life uh, lessons that can be found here as well. On one side of the controversy, there are those who believe that the Apostle Paul made a mistake in proceeding here uh, to Jerusalem, where he was ultimately uh, arrested. And the foundation for their argument is, again, in verse 4. And here he's been plainly warned, they say, by the Holy Spirit not to go, and he went anyway. And the idea is that Paul was so blinded by his love for the Jewish people, a love and a, and a, a desire for the salvation of the Jewish people that was so great that when he wrote to the church in Rome, he declared that he would, in essence, give up his own salvation for the salvation of his people. I don't know who you would say that about in our own lives. But he doesn't say it as hyperbole. These are people that are persecuting him uh, massively, and yet that is his uh, heart for them. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, his, what he's willing to go through in order for them to, uh, uh, to hear the gospel. And that Paul was convinced that if only he could share Jesus uh, as the promised Messiah with them, then they would listen. Uh, because Paul felt he had a, 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 an advantage in that. Uh, he was a Pharisee. He knew the Scriptures. He was a student of Gamaliel. Uh, in terms of zeal for Judaism and the law, he persecuted the church, and he thought, if I can preach Jesus and the biblical foundation for Him as the Messiah, they will believe. And he's, uh, that this is what he is uh, convinced of if he could just have that, uh, that uh, opportunity to do that. I know where these people are coming from. And if I could just speak to a, a, a large audience of them, uh, then, then they would uh, turn to Christ. And so the idea is that he's governed by emotion uh, and uh, deliberately blows through all of these stop signs of the Holy Spirit, took himself then out of the perfect will of God for his life, moved himself into the permissive will of God, and that the rest of the book of Acts uh, uh, represents what uh, did end up happening but should have never happened in his life. So if you, if you interpret this as a mistake now, he's moved from God's perfect intent for his life, and now he's moved into the permissive will of, of God. One of the things I've noticed about people that teach this as a mistake 
and that the remaining record of, of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is the consequences of his mistake, is I notice that they abandon that position almost immediately upon leaving um, this chapter uh, because it is almost impossible to teach the remainder of the book uh, in any simple, uncomplicated way while holding the view uh, that he is out of the will of God and what he's doing here. And there are respected teachers that hold, uh, hold that view, and it can be very confusing to you, uh, if, you if you come in uh, under that. On the other side of this controversy, you have those that believe that it was the Lord's uh, desire for Paul to go to, to uh, Jerusalem all along, uh, that the warnings that he received along the way they were not uh, given to him as a prohibition from going, but as a preparation for the hardship that he would uh, uh, encounter once he, he got there. And personally, uh, I don't believe that Paul made a mistake in going up to Jerusalem and that uh, he did not violate God's will for his life in doing so. And I want to just explain uh, why I do, since it affects our uh, understanding of the book the rest of the way. Whenever we come to a passage where the passage can be a little bit, we, we feel it's unclear um, and we don't quite, a little mystery to us, we don't know quite what to make of uh, that particular uh, passage. It confuses us. The safest thing that we can do to discover the meaning uh, is to examine the passage in the light of um, its context, the verses that surround it, the passage, uh, so the verses then in the context of the chapter, then in the context of the book, and then in the context of the Bible as a whole. What does the whole Bible reveal to us uh, about the issue that we're trying to uh, un understand here? And the Apostle Paul himself calls this rightly dividing uh, the word of truth. And in that, in that vein, uh, first uh, we consider all of Paul's uh, previous revelations in terms of going to Jerusalem uh, in which he sensed that the Holy Spirit was directing him uh, to go there and he, and he sensed this was the Lord and, and he sensed it without qualification. Uh, Acts chapter 19 verse 21, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in, in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. Uh, to the Ephesian elders, as we saw uh, just a couple chapters ago, he spoke to them in this vein. Uh, he said, I, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So Paul recognized this to be a preparation for what he would encounter, uh, but not a, a prohibition. As he went from one city to the next, the Holy Spirit was prophesying uh, through uh, other Christians that difficulty awaited him uh, in, in Jerusalem. And uh, whatever it was, as they would uh, prophesy this, Paul did not interpret it in any way as nullifying what he had already heard the Lord speak uh, to his, uh, into his life. Remember, the apostle Paul is an apostle. And so this is a special calling. It doesn't mean that they couldn't make mistakes. 
in, in their calling. Peter did and, and, and so forth. Uh, they weren't perfect. Only the Lord is perfect. But in terms of revelation from God and, uh, and an understanding of the will of God and speaking for God, they were in a category of their own as highly as we would view a prophet or the office of, uh, of prophet within a church. The apostles kind of, uh, the apostles clearly trumped uh, the office of uh, a, uh, a prophet. And uh, without indisputable proof, uh, I feel, uh, of evidence to, uh, of open rebellion on the part of the apostle Paul and all of this, I'm not at all comfortable with condemning him in, in any way in all of this. Second, what happened to Paul in Jerusalem was completely consistent with what God spoke to Ananias, uh, who laid hands on Paul in the city of Damascus, prophesied over him, prayed over him, uh, when uh, at the time of Paul's uh, conversion. And, uh, and the Lord uh, spoke concerning Anani- to Ananias concerning Paul and said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine uh, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Up to this point in Paul's ministry, In the book of Acts, Paul has not yet appeared before kings and rulers as God said that he would. But in the final chapters of the book of Acts now, uh, all of that is going to happen. He's going to testify before kings, plural, uh, uh, concerning uh, Jesus. And it was his arrest in Jerusalem that set uh, all of this earlier prophetic revelation into motion. Third, when Agabus uh, uh, prophesied by the Holy Spirit uh, using Paul's uh, belt that all of these chains awaited and and, uh, uh, again, without any sort of prohibition from entering uh, the city, though Agabus had the perfect chance to slam the door in his prophecy, but he does not. He's a tried and true prophet. He delivers the message And then he doesn't go to the next step that everybody else did and said, this is a prohibition to go. He could have done it, and he didn't do it. It was simply uh, a a preparation rather than a a prohibition. The fourth is that I find it very difficult to believe that, uh, that Paul's parting words there in verse 13 were uh, spoken by a man who was uh, knowingly disobeying uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't state there in verse 13 that I'm willing to die for my own plan and go into Jerusalem contrary to the will of God and I'm ready to die in Jerusalem uh, for my own disobedience. He says, no, I'm willing to die for the name of uh, the Lord. And then fifth, the response of of Paul's traveling party and the uh, church at Caesarea there recorded in verse 14, uh, it is not consistent with them viewing Paul's decision uh, as one that was contrary to uh, what he knew to be the will uh, of 
uh, God. And so it's a reaction that's consistent with viewing Jerusalem uh, not as the site of something that's forbidden, but something that's hard and, and dangerous. So they would have really dug in. And then, and then sixth, and there, we could go on and on, but I'll, I'll stop there. Uh, there are the blessings and the affirmations that God continues to speak into Paul's life from this point on all the way through the book of, of Acts and uh, subsequent to his arrest in Jerusalem. God never rebukes him. Uh, never told him that, that he did wrong. Nothing that even intimates it in God's uh, interaction with uh, the Apostle uh, Paul. As we will come in chapter 23 soon. Uh, as Paul is there, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, uh, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And so no hint at all uh, of, of wrongdoing. He doesn't come to uh, Paul in his uh, incarceration and cell. isn't this a fine mess uh, you have uh, put yourself in and now I've got to bail you out. Or look at the confusion you've created for uh, Bible students for the rest of church history in, in what you've done here. There is no rebuke. And if God uh, doesn't find a cause for rebuke in the Apostle Paul, of course, uh, I would be very, very hesitant uh, to do that. So it seems to me it's best to understand verse 4 in the same vein as, as verses 10 to 12, uh, where you have Christians out of a deep, deep love for Paul. Uh, they wish to protect him from all of the hardships he was going to experience uh, there in Jerusalem. And Paul recognized it absolutely for what it was and and had to reject it in order to remain obedient to God's plan for his life. Now, uh, allow me uh, a, a very brief uh, observation and a very brief application, devotional application related to all of this. The observation. Uh, somehow, it's encouraging to me to see um, how the early church uh, struggled at times to know and to understand the will of God. It wasn't like they went to some red phone somewhere in the Vatican or in uh, you know, Red Square or some other place and picked it up and they got exact uh, clarity every time on what God uh, wanted them uh, to do. And it comforts me related to that to know I'm not alone. And in, uh, in that, Lord, I want your will. That's all I want is your will for my life. And then sometimes, even then, it can be hard to understand, what do you want me to do here? And, and it's always been the case. God promises to give us wisdom when we lack it and we need it. He doesn't tell us when he will do it, but he promises that he will uh, do that. And then uh, I'm very blessed by this chapter and in Paul's life and in the, in the early church to observe that through all of this kind of a maze of conflicting opinions of really good and godly people, that God did what was necessary for his will to prevail in Paul's life and then everybody else's life as uh, well. And this is known as his sovereignty. And we can be confident of that same thing in our lives. 
You think back if we've walked with the Lord for any length of time, we look back and we see situations and it's like, okay, um, Lord, I believe you want uh, me to do this, and, uh, and then, but I don't see the path for how that gets there. Would you lead me? Would you show me? And in, in, the, in the, the trip between here and getting there, it can just look like chaos. It looks anything like a, a map that's been handed to us or a GPS. It's a straight line as the, as the bird flies. And yet, through all of it, voila, we end up exactly where he wanted us in life at this point in time. I think all of us ha have that experience where we look and we wonder, and then here we are, we sit here tonight. And say, well, how did you end up here? I don't know. He, he told me that this is what he, he, he was going to do. He didn't tell me how he was going to do it. I lacked clarity uh, most of the way, and all I know is that I wanted his will, and he delivered me here, and I know that it's his will. It, he always prevails in this way in our lives when, when we want his, his will. And it's not only uh, a truth, but it's a truth about our, our own lives. I think that this passage also supplies us with a very, very important application that may not apply to our lives every day as Christians. It may only apply to our lives a handful of times in all the years and decades we may be a Christian. But when it does apply, it's a, it's a life uh, saver for us. In, uh, in those situations makes all of the difference. And the passage teaches us that when we're facing a season of suffering uh, in our lives and uh, suffering inside of the will of God, that at those kind of times, it's very important to be very discerning concerning the counsel that we receive from people who love us most in uh, life. And there's a tendency within many of us concerning those that we love when we see them in a season of hardship or suffering to try and protect them at all costs, uh, to protect them from hardship, to protect them from uh, suffering, and, uh, and uh, to bring an end to their suffering as quickly as possible and, and by, by any means. And oftentimes, uh, even it encouraging a person to get out of the suffering, a Christian, uh, even at the expense of God's will for uh, our lives, even at the expense of God's commandments to us in His Word, uh, uh, they will encourage us because they so want to end our suffering and our difficulty. They will give us counsel to jump out, stop it, quit, uh, do something uh, different without even a word of prayer related to the situation, driven entirely by emotion and, and, a, and a, an undisciplined, unguided love uh, for us. And all that we know is that our loved one is suffering and what in the world can we do to stop it? And I have seen this over and over and over and over again uh, so many times through, uh, through the years. 
A marriage gets difficult for an adult child, and then the parents of that child, adult child, very often Christian parents, they hate to see their son or their uh, daughter involved in, in that kind of, of hardship and uh, that can sometimes come with marriage. And so they jump in and they uh, encourage their child to get out of the marriage. Uh, they give them options, active options for abandoning uh, the marriage. Doesn't matter what God's Word says about uh, divorce. Doesn't matter what God's Word says about anything. Doesn't matter about the character that He might be developing in them and the relationship that He's deepening between them and Him. None of that matters. Just end it and get out of it. Or college education begins to get very, very difficult. And here we are, we're doing this within the will of God for our lives. Now it gets hard. And then so often those that love us uh, the most, they'll uh, jump in and they'll tell us to uh, drop college or to change our major, do anything to stop the suffering. Or our workplace gets hard. It starts to demand long hours of us. The boss really starts to push us to become better people, better employees. And... Uh, and, and it's not easy to learn those uh, lessons. And yet these people that love us uh, so much in life, so to speak, uh, they'll tell us, you're too good for that job anyway. There's plenty of other jobs. And so just stop the suffering, uh, quit and move on. And on and on and on this kind of thing uh, goes. And in seasons of hardship in our lives, it's important to be wise and discerning about who we get our counsel from about how to view the situation we're in. Certainly include the perspective and the counsel of those who love us most in life, but then move on to other people who have a different kind of relationship with us to ask their perspective concerning the situation and then listen to that, and then take all of that, the safety that is found in the multitude of counselors, and take that in prayer to the Lord and ask Him, what do you want me to do here in this situation? Because as hard as being in the will, uh, as hard as uh, being in the will of God can be in life, and it can be very hard, you know, always to remember there's something harder still, and that is for a child of God to be outside of the will of God. Think, oh, this is good. This will be the, this will solve all of my problems. Oh, no, no. You go that route, I go that route. My problems are just beginning. Because now he's got to get me all the way back here. You, you don't skip grades in the kingdom of God. Uh, you got, you'll, you'll, he'll bring, you back, bring us back into the fifth grade until we learn what we're supposed to learn in the fifth grade. And then he'll move us on. And he loves us enough to do that. And then to take it to the Lord and ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? We should never as a Christian make a decision, major decision in our life or any decision really based solely upon uh, what other people think that we should do. And, and not even on the basis of a word from the Lord on the part of someone to me. 
I want to hear any way that God wants to speak to me as a Christian. I need every single means that he has at his disposal to speak to me. I'm a numbskull. And so I'm not going to close off any of those things. But just because someone tells me to pack my bags and head to Chile and become a missionary, and it's the first I heard of it, I'm not going to do that. If it comes as a confirmation, they don't know anything about the fact that I'm praying about that. I'm not praying about that. But I'm praying about that, and then it comes in. Now, even then, I'll take it and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Is this confirmation? Is it not confirmation? Then I can give some weight uh, to it. But to never make decisions on the basis of of something that uh, anybody else says. And additionally, this teaches us, and this is where the rubber meets the road in all of this, is that we need to be careful not to do the same thing to those that we love in life. And we so want to end their suffering, to end the difficulty that they're going through in, in the will of God in their lives, and, uh, and then become an influence for them to abandon obedience to God's word and calling and then encourage them to disobey God or go against their own godly convictions to escape it. And we are as capable of doing it for others as, as, uh, as anybody is in doing for us. I am, I mean, apart from the, uh, away from the pulpit, I'm a really nice guy. I like people, and I like to help people, and, and I, I've never, it, that I know of, ever, because of a tale of woe or difficulty, I've had my own, and the world's worst thing I could have done was to jump out of the will of God in the middle of it, because now I got all this mess going on, and now I've made it literally ten times worse, because I have no refuge in the Lord. And so, uh, and so I, I understand these things, and, and there's a part of me that listens, and there's this, the, there's this carnal kind of misguided emotion and affection and care for the person that would love to say, yes, that is awful, it's a terrible, you're being mistreated, jump out of it. And, and yet, by the grace of God, never to uh, ever to uh, do that. And uh, some of us are, you have certain kinds of personalities. You have some people who um, have tremendous empathy toward people in ministry. And uh, they kind of lead with their hearts on everything. And the Word of God kind of follows them. And if we're that kind of a person, we have to be especially careful here. You have other people who lead with the Word, and they don't have any empathy at all. Ah, quit your sniveling, get out of here, this sanctuary. You're just a big baby. You know, what it, you know what it's like to be a Christian in Iran? Get out of here. And, uh, you know, you've got there's somewhere in between those two is probably where we want to uh, land. Uh, but uh, the supreme goal in life is not to escape all uh, difficulty or suffering, uh, but to live in the will of God and to fulfill his call uh, for, uh, for our lives. And when we had come, verse 17, uh, to Jerusalem, uh, the brethren received us. No, I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. 
That was Bush one, wasn't it? Wouldn't be prudent. Not going to do it. So we'll stop uh, the um, imitations of Bush, and we'll stop also the Bible study at verse 16. And we'll pick it up in verse 17 because it's another controversy that is important and very instructive for us, and we can't uh, get through it in, uh, in time. So we'll pick it up um, next time. Let's have the worship team come forward and and there really are some very, very practical things in our, our hearts to allow uh, just a moment or two to search our hearts and say, Lord, I don't think I'm that kind of a person, but would you protect me from doing that? Or Lord, that's what I do. That's my first reaction and it's destructive and I don't want that to be a part of my life or whatever it is that we're sorting through or nothing. It's just a, another opportunity to worship the Lord for a little bit longer here as we close the service and um, that's what we'll do uh, now.